Hi, this is Randy Backman from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Hello again, Martin Popoff, back again with another episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. I'm excited to be here as part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. So uh, no problem finding where we are. Okay, so for this episode, um, first off, I wanted to uh, read a little letter that came in because you'll see in a second why this is pertinent. Uh, this came in from Stefan Moibus from Canberra, Australia. He says, uh, hey, Martin, loving the potty. Some ideas, some more obvious than others. Martin Birch through time. I wish someone would write a book about the massive influence he had in heavy rock, but a history in five songs episode would be nearly as good exclamation mark. Bands that defy categorization. I love The Gathering, and it strikes me when you go through Spotify, Amazon recommendations of bands like The Gathering that actually no one is like them. Pretty sure there are others. Female-fronted metal is another one. A Dio career focus. Elf, Rainbow, Sabbath, Dio, Heaven and Hell. Shanker Family Tree. Scorpions, UFO, MSG, Offshoot. If that's uh, too much of a stretch, perhaps a German metal band's through history episode. I better stop, but wish you all the best regards. So, uh, uh, ask and you shall receive. Um, I quite liked your Martin Birch idea. So this episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff is actually going to be the history of Martin Birch in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. So um, tell you a little bit. Okay, first I got to start with this. This is this is kind of um, interesting. I find this interesting. So Martin Birch, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He retired long time ago, uh, basically after bowing out after being Iron Maiden's exclusive producer uh, up to Fear of the Dark. So we're talking now 1992, long, long time ago anyways. So the guy doesn't do a lot of interviews. Um, but I've had this email relationship with him that kind of goes thusly. So He's a, he's amazing. He's a super nice guy. Everybody I've ever interviewed has said that he's a nice guy. So so when I email Martin, as long as it's not in the middle of the night, he tends to get back to me somewhere between instantly and within an hour or so. You know, we we might exchange, exchange pleasantries. How is retirement treating you? I might ask the odd question. He'll give me a helpful answer, not too long, not too short uh, by email. But, you know, here I am sitting here. I've written four books on Black Sabbath, or three books on Black Sabbath, three or four, uh, four actually, uh, four books on Deep Purple, uh, a White Snake book, a Blue Oyster Cult book, Rainbow, did I mention Rainbow? Um, so there's all these bands that I've done these, uh, these books on where literally multiple albums or these bands' career-making albums, some of their greatest albums for sure, uh, are Martin Birch Productions. And and you know me when it comes to these books. I, I like to write about uh, every chapter is an album. I interview lots of producers. I always find they're very helpful. They have a, as much to say as any single band member does about the making of the records. And the making of the records is what matters to me. I read a lot of rock band bios, and I'm always 
kind of horrified or perplexed that, that you know, get, you get up to the big album I want to read about and it's over in a page and a half or, or three pages when I wanted 40 pages on the thing. Conversely, I read these bios and go, I, I could never write a bio this good. I mean, every bio I read is feels better than every bio I've ever written. Um, and yet they, they tend to have this different focus. They're on other things. So I like the albums. I like talking to producers. So here, here's here's the funny story. So I've never interviewed Martin on the phone. Um, I've had these email exchanges. And one day when I was updating my Blue Oyster Cult book, we're, we're batting back and forth on email a little bit. And at one point I get up and go, I've, I've, I bought this condo to use as an office in, in Toronto here where I am. It's, it's a walk down from the house. I come here every day. This is where I work. It's stacked to the gills, to the ceilings with records and books and CDs and stuff. So the, the quote unquote bedroom area of this office, um, is kind of down around the corner and it's, and it's filled with records. So this one day I go over there and I'm, I'm just retrieving some vinyl and I come out from around the corner. Here's the key thing. I can't hear my phone. I can't hear my phone if I get even halfway away from where I do my work in this office in the main area. It's really weird. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's so full of stuff. Um, anyways, I come back. The phone is just rang. It's going into machine. Martin Birch left me a message. It felt like that was our one time. And I said, I'm back at my desk. And then he never called. So I felt like that was my one time to have this great conversation with Martin Birch that might have you know, started off a, a few interviews where, whereby in many of these books, you would have read like like a whole bunch of Martin Birch quotes. But there, there aren't any across these literally dozen or so books I've written that Martin Birch is a, is a key player in. So you know as the as the years went on i essentially you know decided i'm not i'm not going to keep bugging him to like let's have let's have an interview i i just email with him i've never interviewed him i just feel like it's almost my destiny that he and i will never talk you know he's a super nice guy he's even said things like um you know i said oh you should do your life story right at some point he says martin if i ever do my life story i'm going to do it with you because you know i can tell how much you were knowledgeable about all this and everything so you know I don't, I don't, I don't believe him, and I don't even think he should work with me. I mean, he probably knows all these legendary, um, you know, uh, journalists who he's probably met throughout the years that go back way further than me, and he should, he should do his his memoirs uh, with one of these guys. But you know, I I thought that was kind of nice of him. Um, and like I say, everybody I've ever interviewed about them, I've asked dozens of people about Martin Birch, and they they all say just super nice things about him, basically as a person and also as, um, you know, as what he brought to the band, as how helpful he was with the bands. So, um, so yeah, so this is going to be a, a pretty cool episode because I actually feel like I can make all the points about Martin Birch I want to make uh, across five songs. So let me just give you a little history first of all. So he started working out as as an engineer on all these classic cool old albums. So in the early days through the 70s, he basically started in, uh, looks like 1969, I'd say. Uh, Fleetwood Mac then play on. Jeff Beck, Beckola, he's an engineer. He's an engineer through all these years. He works on a whole bunch of Fleetwood Mac albums that's pretty significant back in the uh the blues boom days or or between the blues boom days and the and the two gals days um and then uh he he also uh, you know and he worked on some blues boom kind of stuff like peter peter green groundhogs canned heat um toad skid row you know the old um the old um 
uh, Gary Moore band. Uh, they put out two albums. He he was the engineer on the one called Thirty Four Hours. Um, Flash, so he's got some prog in there. Just a few disparate things. But his main thing in the seventies was uh, basically the engineer on on all those classic Mark II and Mark III and even Mark IV. Actually, come to think of it, um, Deep Purple records. Uh, you know, including Machine Head, uh, Who Do We Think We Are, Burn, Stormbringer, Come Taste the Band. He's a co-producer on, but. He he, um, and then the other funny thing is he he starts in with the Deep Purple members as solo members, but um, he gets to be uh, basically his big coming out party as a producer is the first Richie Blackmore Rainbow album uh, or Rainbow album. Um, but yeah, let's let's hear a little bit of music uh, to get a little break from me. Um, let's go with something off the second uh, Rainbow album, Rising, nineteen seventy six, classic classic album. Here's a little taste of Tarot Woman. <laughs> Right, so here we have Martin Birch coming into his own as a producer. And it's funny, I, uh, you know, I, I was kind of reading his wiki entry to see if there was anything, uh, anything good said there, and it, and it said he had a, he had a bright mid-range sound in, in the wiki page. And I'm going, oh, that's kind of smart. And then I look, and they're quoting me in this thing. So, um, yes, that's what I've always believed about Martin, and that is actually the narrative that we're going to put across these, uh, these five songs. So, what you get on Rainbow Rising is you get, um, you get essentially a metaphor. Uh, for the Martin Birch sound. It's going to change a little over the years, but this gives you a good taste of how he's he's really sitting in there in the mid-range and with Cozy, Cozy Powell, the drummer, he's kind of giving him a Bonham-esque sound with a ploipy bass drum, drum, really bright cymbals, but not a lot of bass on the bass drum. And there's not a lot of bass across this album, period. It's all about excitement. It's about guitars. It's about things in the mid-range, everything sitting, sitting well. There's nothing that you feel is particularly incorrect about this. It just feels a little raw and a little mid-rangey. Now, um, there's a really cool uh, interview he did with Kerrang! back in 1983, I believe it was. And it was, the, you know, he, he, he put out some of these insights where he, he essentially explained that what he was doing here was, was pretty intentional. It had a lot to do with things not getting lost in the sound. It had to do with, um, you know, things translating onto radio, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's almost like he's he's in there inventing a form of natural analog compression before the idea of compression and before compression became a bad word. You feel you feel there's a there's a compressedness here and it gives a sort of hecticness and a hyperactivity and an urgent rock and roll feel uh, to what's going on. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on. Where are my notes? There they are. So yes, so um, number two. Well, let's take a listen and then I'll explain. This is a little bit of uh, Black Sabbath Die Young.
All right, Black Sabbath Die Young. Here you really get the true metaphor of the of the Martin Birch sound. So Black Sabbath is coming out of the Aussie years and they've they've got Ronnie James Dio coming in. It's a bold move. So what you get here is a bold, bright, lively, vibrant sound. Again, he's taken Bill Ward and and kind of um, you know, up the frequencies on the bass drums. Um the snare is super snappy. Uh, the guitars are just vital and in your face, and everything is just in this compressed sort of range. What I love about this, so really, he's he's uh, he's done some rainbow stuff. Okay, so the the first Richie Blackmore, I don't think he did a great job on. The third Richie Blackmore's rainbow, or just sorry, just rainbow, long live rock and roll. I don't think he did that good a job on. Rising just has some real charm about it. Um, so so I think there, there's something really cool in that for 1976. But what happens is as the 70s go on, I'm just giving you the little lead up here to, uh, to Heaven and Hell. Um, there's, there's not a lot that he's doing in there, there other than these kind of arcane. He's doing the John Lord albums. Um, what else is he doing here? Uh, Wayne County and Electric Chairs. Roger Glover solo. He does Cozy's solo album over the top. So nothing of much consequence. This is really his big second coming out party, if you will, or third, if you, you, know, if you think of his uh, engineering days with Deep Purple. Um, but what I love about this choice and why I wanted to play you this song is that he's he's also not a one-trick pony because what happens is uh, when he goes to do the Mob Rules album, another album that sounds absolutely brilliant, um, he completely changes his sound. I mean, he he gives them on that record kind of a warm, bulbous, bassy, you know, massive sound. And it's it's a very different sound than what you're getting here on on Heaven and Hell. So Heaven and Hell, it's almost as if it's almost as if he's matching the excitement of Ronnie coming into the band with what he has to do behind the board. And again, I, I, I have to reiterate, uh, you know, through all these books I've done on these bands, um, everybody just loves Martin. They say he has a great sense of humor. Um, he's, he's really organized. He, he gets stuff done. He has good ideas. Um, I don't think he's really the kind of producer who's in there tearing apart the material. Now, that's going to have a problem a little bit later. When we get to the end of this uh, episode, um, you know, I'm, I'm basically going to tell you, I'm going to be a little hard on Martin because he does not end his career on a high note. Um, so we will get there in a minute. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Black Sabbath, but I want to talk about them after I give you uh, our song number three. So let's do that first. Um, uh, there's a reason for this. Take a listen to this. This is Blue Oyster Cult After Dark. What's that in the corner? It's too dark to see. What's that noise I'm hearing? Who's that calling me? Long ago. Okay, so Blue Oyster Cult. What we have going on here is uh, is a cool situation where you have um, where you have Black Sabbath doing an album in '80, 
and album in 81, they sound different from each other. But also at the same time, their nemesis over in uh, America, Blue Oyster Cult, same kind of name, long story, but there's the, you know, back in the old days, Columbia said, hey, we want our own Black Sabbath, and Blue Oyster Cult had to become a scary conspiracy theory, slightly uh, evil band uh, from their from their um, Grateful Dead, dead-ish roots uh, to become Blue Oyster Cult. So anyways, and they do, and they do a tour together at this point, and they get Sandy Perlman uh, managing both bands at the same point. But the interesting part of this story, vis-a-vis Martin Birch, is that Blue Oyster Cult does a really cool album called Cultosaurus Erectus in 1980, and they follow it up with a hit album called Fire of Unknown Origin in 1981. What you just heard is After Dark from Fire of Unknown Origin. Now, what Martin does for this band in both cases, he does the characteristic quintessential Martin Birch sound, but they're slightly different. So on the first one, Cultosaurus Erectus, it's a little dry and humorless, and I'm not crazy about it, it's it's definitely a mid-rangey kind of thing, but there just seems to be some treble missing as low as well. There's some bass missing. It's it's kind of it's not very dynamic. It's not very exciting. What he does on Fire of Unknown Origin, however, is um, he 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 raises the excitement level, the electricity level through treble, but uh, but there's there's a better capture of Alan Lanier's keyboards as well. So I often consider um, this album to be a little bit of like uh, heavy metal meets the Stranglers, um, and that's why I picked After Dark to play a little bit for you. It it has a little bit of that Stranglers moodiness to him. So what he does here is he really updates Blue Oyster Cult for the 80s the same way he did uh, Black Sabbath. And he gives them just this vital, cool sound. And, uh, and lo and behold, they have, they have a hit album. They, they basically come back from Cultosaurus not selling well and Mirrors not selling well, which, by the way, is my favorite sounding Blue Oyster Cult album. I think, uh, Tom, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Anyways, uh, that's, that's a better sounding album, I think, than um than either of these two Blue Oyster Cult albums. I can't I can't believe I've, I'm forgetting his name because I could do a whole episode on him as well. Anyways, and we'll do that. We will rectify that one day. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Um, so that is our number three pick. Uh, let's take a little bit of a break and hear from our sponsors. When we dropped the first few episodes of Rock and Roll Archaeology into the feed three and a half years ago, little did we know that this telling of rock and roll history would become a pantheon of rock and roll podcasts. Since many of you first joined us on our rock and roll exploration, the halls of the rock and roll pantheon have filled with shows like Deeper Digs in Rock, Rock and Roll Librarian, Muses, Art of Rock with Caution Friends, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, Vinyl Snob, and more. We are proud of this one-of-a-kind approach to an audio magazine of high-quality shows. That is Pantheon, and thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you, our diggers who listen to all of our shows. And now, we are excited to let you know that every show available as part of Pantheon can be found in their own podcast feed to subscribe to in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows you've come to love. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our Pantheon of Rock and Roll and find them all at pantheonpodcast.com. Keep up the rockin'. 
All right, so we are back again. History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. History of Martin Birch in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Um, so number four, um, we are going to play a little bit of Iron Maiden from Number of the Beast. This is Prisoner. Right. So the reason why I wanted to play that, um, I, first of all, I want to say that uh, there's a very significant, significant band we are leaving out of this discussion because it, it doesn't really feed our narrative. I'll, I'll explain to you a little bit. Well, it does feed our narrative. Um, in fact, yes, it really does. Whitesnake. So Whitesnake is a band that uh, that Martin also produced all of those big albums, you know, right up until the massive, massive one. Um, but but everything early, including all the David Color- Coverdale uh, solo albums. So so you're you're um hang hang on, let me just uh David. Well, okay, maybe not the David Coverdales. But anyways, he's in there with Snakebite. He's in there with Trouble. He's in there with the live album uh, and the significant records. Uh, such as Love Hunter, Ready and Willin', which is my favorite, Come and Get It, Saints and Sinners. So that clutch of records there, he's the producer, engineer, mixer. Um, he, again, at that point, is doing the key Martin Birch sound. Um, but he is tweaking it. He's giving he's giving Whitesnake a little bit different things along the way. But again, he's in there with uh, with a drummer, actually two drummers, Ian Pace at one point and, uh, and Cozy Powell at one point, and he is kind of giving them a little bit of a signature sound. So so these drummers he works with, he, he actually, they have their own sound and their own signature and their own personality, but he also adds to it uh, with some of these. Not with Albert Bouchard, not with Bill Ward, but he definitely does it with the, with the guy you just heard, Clive Burr, and he definitely does it a little bit with, definitely with Cozy Powell, and he does it a little bit with Ian Pace. Um, but... Uh, I'll just stay short on these. The White Snake albums are also all quite mid-rangey, but they also have different sort of electric, sizzly distortion uh, levels as you go along. So there's, you know, when you get into the likes of Come and Get It and Saints and Sinners, it really does have this sort of uh, kiss-like um, urgency and simplicity to it. And uh, and you definitely feel that Martin Birch, uh, this is going to be accessible. It's going to hit you right between the eyes. It's something that'll play on radio. There's not going to be a lot, a lot of dynamics lost. So... Back to Iron Maiden. So this is pretty interesting. What happens with Martin at this point is uh, he becomes Iron Maiden's um, exclusive. He he exclusively works only with Iron Maiden, and Iron Maiden works exclusively only with him um, throughout throughout all the big years. Basically, starting with Iron Maiden's second album, Killers, uh, all the way up to to uh, Fear of the Dark. So so all that time, Iron Maiden's a massive band. He is in there producing them and. Uh, as Rod Smallwood says, um, I actually just put out a, a Maiden book called uh, Where Eagles Dare Iron Maiden in the 80s. And right now, uh, with my layout guy, I've got Holy Smoke Iron Maiden in the 90s. Um, so this stuff's really, really on my brain. Um, but 
Rod Smallwood uh, ha- has basically said, you know, we didn't tell him you couldn't work with anybody else. And in the early days, he actually did do some other albums. There's a little overlap at the very, very beginning. But basically what he said and, and what, you know, what what I feel is the case with Martin, and um, I, I, I might have gotten this from, from, you know, my correspondence with him, but... Um, he essentially liked the the workload, the 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 minimal workload or medium workload of only working with Iron Maiden. That was enough for him as as he made his way towards retirement. So eighty one through through to ninety two, he's just doing Maiden and he's working his way towards retirement, and then he retires. It's it's quite an interesting story. So um, so yes, Number of the Beast. What you just heard um, again. This is quintessential Martin Birch. Um, they are working on, uh, they are working quickly and on not great equipment, as Bruce, uh, as Bruce has said many times in interviews. Um, you know, so so uh, the situation wasn't ideal, but he gets a very urgent mid-rangey sound out of them, and and really, like I say, he adds twenty percent of his own personality onto Clive Burr. You know, moving on to the next one, peace of mind. He kind of does the same thing with Nico. He helps give Nico this this signature sound that Nico has because Nico does not have that signature sound. You know, a- across the older albums, um, you know, Trust and Pat Travers and stuff. But <clears throat> once he gets into Maiden, he really does have a signature sound, and I think you got to give a lot of credit to Martin Birch for that. So that was our number uh, our number four pick, Prisoner from Number of the Beast. Now, uh, moving on. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of Holy Smoke from Iron Maiden's No Prayer for the Dying. I still smell cleaner than a shit you're in. Holy smoke, holy smoke. There's plenty bad preachers for the devil to stoke. Feet on it, feet first. This is no joke. This is thirsty work. Making holy smoke. So there you go. No prayer for the dying. Martin Birch, you know, this is the part where I say, you know, I'm not I'm not crazy about the way that Martin kind of played out his career because um, I think most people would agree that his best years were behind him as Iron Maiden kind of moves on. And Iron Maiden, see, part of the problem here is that I think Martin probably would have done things differently had he not been confronted with, um, you know, a, a strong opinion and a feel of what Iron Maiden should be coming out of Steve Harris. So Steve Harris, very enthusiastic guy, loves Iron Maiden, has this vision that he really does not want them to change too much through time. He loves his 70s hard rock and his 70s prog. Um, Iron Maiden kind of sticks to an old school way of producing all the way through the 80s and frankly through the 90s and frankly even into the 2000s with Kevin Shirley and and trying to record as many things kind of live off the floor and boomy as he can. Um, Basically, every Iron Maiden album, there's, you know, and this is credit to Steve as well. Every Iron Maiden album, there's no crazy badly dated sounds like, like where they just like 80s technology all over the place or whatever. Um, so all the Iron Maiden sa- albums sound timeless. Now some of them sound kind of crappy and timeless. Um, you know, I, I, you know, when when Steve really takes over the reins and produces briefly there with his engineer Nigel Green, and they do and they do the two Blaze era albums, things get even worse. Um, but um, again, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that Martin uh, is a genius at this point because because what what he's kind of doing is. 
I think he's giving away a little more of the reins over to Steve. Uh, Steve is is becoming a producer in his own right. He's got his own ideas. At, at this point, no prayer for the dying. They're working at Steve's Barnyard Studios on his own property in Essex. Um, and they do it again for for fear of the dark. And basically, Martin is Martin is probably not particularly allowed to be Martin and to, and to run the show. And I have a feeling, you know, Martin, if you if you sat him down with a beer or a couple of beers, a couple of pints, as they say in England, um, and and you know, he would probably rue the fact that he probably doesn't think he went off on a high note. And, and nobody does. Nobody does think he went off on a high note. So if he said that, I would lose some respect for him if he said, oh, these are the greatest sounding records I ever made. But he wouldn't say that. I know that. Uh, he has too much good taste. So basically, uh, you know, the Maiden records kind of get a little more uh, not greatly produced as the 80s move on. And then No Prayer for the Dying is sort of their abyss. And Fear of the Dark, you know, people say it's a little bit better, but it's not that much better. And and even Bruce admits this. He, he doesn't think these records sound great. And the other thing, again, what Martin is not doing is he's not in there tearing apart the material, and the material isn't exactly the greatest either. So he's not in there doing that producer thing, and he's not in there doing the uh, the Martin Birch quote-unquote, bright, mid, mid-range, mid vitality, you know, uh, natural analog compression thing either. So so there you go. So um, there's Martin Birch. A lot of great things uh, to say about him. He's been on some classic albums. One I didn't mention there was Michael Schenker Group Assault Attack. It was one of the last things he did uh, that was not Iron Maiden. So that was back in 1982 with his old buddy Cozy Powell on drums, giving Cozy that usual drum sound. Um, but... Yeah, strange career, engineer, producer of some of the greatest, you know, classic English heavy metal albums of all time, and then exclusive producer for Iron Maiden, and things kind of go a little downhill towards the end, and then he retires, okay? <laughs> There's your Martin Birch primer for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's sign off now. I mean, that's basically it. Uh, thank you again for listening to History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Email me at martinp at inforamp.net uh, with ideas. As you can see, I listen. Um, you can go to martinpopoff.com for all my books. I just put out a new rainbow book, actually, called Sensitive to Light, The Rainbow Story. A uh, big, huge update from my old rainbow book from the early 2000s. Um, and that's it. We shall see you again next time. Thanks for listening. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 